All month, we've been talking about climate change. The crisis is here, and we know what to do about it. All we need to do is take the actions we know we should take. My name is Eric Bullman. I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. This month, we've talked about how we can trust that most of the people around us want to act on the environment as much as we do. How people are taking action in their own communities, workplaces, and schools to make the climate healthier and themselves happier along the way. And we've also talked about climate scientists feeling muzzled and being worried about sharing their data or even conducting certain kinds of science for fear of a backlash. And a lot of that, and the barriers that face uh, action on climate, stems from disinformation. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we close out Psychology Month with two science disinformation experts from Science Up First. My name's Rachel Salt. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the communications manager at Science Up First, which is an initiative of the Canadian Association of Science Centers. Thrilled to be here today. I'm Kira Simone. I'm a PhD candidate at McMaster University, and I study climate change and wildfire in uh, ecosystems kind of around eastern Georgian Bay and how that affects uh, at-risk reptile habitat. Rachel, I'm going to start with you. And the question that I had for myself before we went into this, and Denis, the guy at Science Up First that connected me with the two of you guys, asked me the same question, which was, are we going to be talking about specific science disinformation here? And I know that Science Up First is uh, out there trying to debunk all the disinformation that happens. My question for you, Rachel, is, should we be talking about that specific disinformation or does talking about it give it a platform that it doesn't really deserve? And should we just pretend that we already know the answers and move past uh, having to debunk what's out there? What do you think? I love this question. I think there is some concern from some researchers on this thing called the backfiring effect where if you give too much credence to the misinformation that you're debunking, it will send it further out there. But there's some evidence that that has been, that effect isn't too big of a, as big of a problem as folks may have thought. Um, But the way you debunk misinformation is important. So if you're sharing misinformation, make sure you're clearly stating, say if you're sharing a screenshot, making sure you're saying that this is not true, correction incoming and being explicit about the information that with the correct information and leading a lot with the facts. So one thing we always encourage is to not give more voice to that misinformation. So not further amplifying it. So if you see something online that you know is false, not retweeting it or commenting on it excessively because that and the algorithm will just further give it more eyes to see. So if you are going to do a correction, taking a screenshot, sharing that good information is the right approach. And Kira, uh, one of the things we've been talking about over the course of this month is sort of a chilling effect that's happened on climate scientists. That being that a lot of the disinformation that's out there makes its way into the political realm. And then a lot of politicians behave as though they believe the disinformation. And we've seen in the last decade or so, a lot of climate scientists were muzzled. A lot of their funding was cut by the federal government when that was their their bent. That doesn't seem to have fully gone away. I'm wondering if you can comment on that. Have you seen this yourself as a climate scientist, as somebody who's working toward their PhD in this field? uh, A lot of the scientists in that area say they're still feeling 
muzzled partly because the structure's now in place to do that. Let's not talk to the public. And partly internally, they're afraid to share some of this information because they know they're going to get piled on if they do. Yeah, that's quite a question. Um, I think I'm kind of at the stage of my career where I personally am not, um, how do I say this? <laughs> I, I rely on grant funding as science, you know, always and often does, um, which is dependent on political cycles. And um, as you have said, this can depend a lot on who is in power at the time and uh, the messaging around that and sort of what the priorities are. But personally for graduate research, uh, you know, I haven't seen the effects, but I know that there is definitely always talk of how to frame your research as being it's publicly funded. So you can't, uh, I don't know. I don't know how to word this exactly, but you have to have the public trust in what you're doing because their funds are supporting you and relaying this being as objective as possible. is kind of the, the ultimate goal, but I personally haven't felt the effects, I guess, of being subdued in that way, if that makes sense. <laughs> that does make sense. And I think, and correct me if you're wrong, what you're saying here is you will need to sort of project an image of neutrality, but it becomes difficult to do so when the subject itself has become so politicized. I, is that an accurate framing? That is, yeah, that is true. But also, I, I suppose some of the issues come down to where the funding has to be directed. And, you know, you get re uh, research funds for a specific type of project. Uh, you might have certain questions that you'd like to address, but you have to meet the goals set up by that funding. And that becomes more limited um, depending on the political administration and that sort of thing. So with science, we always do try to be objective and neutral in what we're researching, but I guess that becomes even more pared down in the context of what the funds have to be used for in the first place. And Rachel, this the science is out there. We've, we've sort of talked about this also. The, the science is there that says human beings are causing climate change. The effects are being felt right now. We can see them across the world. We can see them here in Canada. And we also know what the solutions are. And this is where we're bringing psychologists into this. One thing that psychologists we think can help with is uh, convincing people to take up those solutions that we already know exist. Uh, but a lot of them are also doing their own uh, scientific research, how climate change affects people mentally, you know, how how people respond to it. And Rachel, I'm hoping you can provide a few uh, insights here as somebody who combats dis online. Is there a way that you found that sharing good information, science information, knowledge translation, that sort of thing? Are you saying like the best practices around sharing science, climate science that has the best impact on folks? Yes. Yeah, I think I think um, touched on a lot of great things there. I think there is um, the majority of folks are alarmed about climate change and are really concerned. And there is a, you know, smaller but often vocal group of folks who are a bit dismissive. But also climate can feel talking about what we're seeing in, in real time can also feel really heavy. So eco anxiety is is definitely prevalent, especially with young people. So creating a space where you know that it's okay to talk about those feelings and and how those are making you feel, encouraging folks to connect with nature, because we know that when we spend time in nature, it lowers stress, but also there's studies that kids who spend time in nature are more likely wanting to protect it. And remembering that you're not alone. Also, I think it's good to, for folks to know that most people, like, I think sometimes there's this perception that, oh, like there's a, a lot of climate denial, but it's actually quite small. 
uh, in terms of uh, the population of Canada. And also to take breaks in your learning. If you're taking in a lot of it's good to be up to date, but if you're taking a lot of information in, it can feel heavy. So make sure you're also looking to stories of positive climate action because they really are out there. So at Science of First, we share a lot of strategies around climate anxiety. We show, um, we know that when people see information around the consensus, that can really help motivate people. We also know folks are really motivated by actions and also good news stories as well. So a combination of knowing the real threats, which I think so many people do, but also with actionable pieces is really helpful. And is there a way for people to do that while not being online? I a pandemic being really heartened at this story about dolphins returning to a series of canals where they had no longer, you know, the pollution had become too great and they hadn't been there. And now they're back because human, you know, behavior was such that the canals were clean, cleaning up now that everyone was isolated. And it turned out to be a giant Internet hoax like so many other things which was disheartening. Is there a way for people to do that while not spending time online or is there a place online where they can find it? Oh, for sure. I think there are so many within so many communities, so many groups with like-minded folks who are engaging in positive climate action. I I know I live in uh, Hamilton, Ontario, and I know within this community, there's a plethora of organizations that you can tap into at your local library. And I would um, suggest folks um, connect with their local library to see what organizations are there because it's not climate change it's not going to be solved by any one person it will be through collective action so doing that within your community can not only make positive change offline but it can also make you feel encouraged and and this is a long term fight so building that resilience through working with your community is is really important. And Kira, I think you're also in Hamilton. What are some of the things that uh, you would recommend? As a climate scientist, uh, what are some of the initiatives that you think are most promising right now? Do you mean in the context of sort of getting people motivated or uh, efficacy with actually combating climate action? I'm thinking efficacy for the time being. Yeah, that's sort of tricky because from, from the perspective, as you were saying, Rachel, of the individual, like we have to really feel that not only are we threatened by climate change, but there's also a way that we can take concrete steps to be able to act on it. Um, and I think a lot of the time that comes down to the individual level and finding people in your community that have like-minded values and in Hamilton, um, there are a lot of groups that even involve local counselors. It's part of my ward. It's There's one called Action 13, where they host repair cafes and uh, other types of events for seed sharing and that sort of local resilience action. So just getting together and sort of seeing that there are alternatives out there to the sort of, I don't know, consumeristic way that we would otherwise interact with uh, purchases or, you know, home maintenance or that sort of thing. But it's very individual and it's very community-based. So I think, again, going to the library and finding those people, um, you know, at your school or at your gym even, or that kind of thing, uh, community bulletin boards. So yeah, the, the repair cafe was one that I personally was part of recently, or, you know, we mended clothes together, we mended furniture. We just kind of hung out and had uh, snacks and reusable mugs and coffee and that sort of thing. And it's not necessarily directly tangible as, you know, we made strides to fight climate change today. But when you look at the outcome of that event, there were, you know, 50 different items repaired and that many things saved from the landfill and that many more connections made. And 
that's really where the tangible comes into play in, in the next coming weeks or months or years. And I think that a lot of the time there is sort of an intangible thing. You use a reusable coffee mug and you can measure the number of times that you haven't thrown out a reusable coffee mug, I guess. But I also don't know that you know, I don't drink more coffee because my mug is reusable. I, you know, there's no way to really know any of this. Uh, but you're ta- you guys are talking about individual action. And of course, collectively, we can make a big difference, but it all takes us doing something individually. And Rachel, you were saying something that we've touched on already uh, this month, which is that you can really trust most other people to want the same thing that you do, to want to tackle climate change, want to make a difference. But a lot of that is going to take a political action as well. It's not going to just be uh, us individually and collectively. It's going to have to mean voting. It's going to have to mean holding elected officials accountable in a certain way. And as somebody who specializes in online disinformation, does that change the way that you interact with people when it is in a political context? Um, Great question. So, Science at first, we are reaching a general audience and that's a big, the general audience is like big. It it includes folks who are looking for science-backed evidence to help inform their decisions. And there's also includes folks who have a lot of doubt too. But we know that we are more likely to agree with things that already support our worldview So a lot of folks might claim that science efforts have biases, but we are not a politically, we we are not a political organization. So we try and share the best available information without bias. But often if that reflects certain existing biases already, that be the case. But it's good for us, like as as a good practice to even things that information that reflects already your worldview to examine it carefully. So make sure when you see something shared on your social media, or if you read a headline, make sure that the author has qualifications and expertise that can speak to that topic. Are the sources that it's coming from credible? Can you track the original source? What is the data that's being quoted pulled from? Is this data from a single study? Is it data from a meta-analysis? And also, to if you're seeing language in a post that's really emotional or really sensationalized, for that to be kind of a red flag because we can really be impacted by big, strong emotions, especially anger. And if something sounds too good to be, be true, then it, it might be. So in terms of politics, I think that's not going to change the kind of content that we cover um, at Science at First, but we definitely will cover different ideas and themes that are relevant that might be showing up in the news. Right. Like dolphins returning to a canal for the first time in a hundred years is too good to be true. I Yes, I get you. I'm wondering, though, a lot of what you're talking about is media. We don't really understand a lot of the media that we consume. And I saw a rather harrowing study recently that showed Americans now trust what they read on social media more than what they read in the actual media. So newspapers, television, radio, they don't trust any of that as much as they trust what's in their Twitter feed. Canada, we're not quite there yet, but we are heading in that direction. And is 
as a social media expert, as somebody who, who does this in, in the realm of communication, is there a way to head that off? Can you head that off by being on social media or is the solution to just disengage from it altogether? I, what would you, what's the recommendation given that this is kind of where we're headed and it's, and it's getting worse. I think there's multiple factors at play. We're seeing a lot of really great news institutions facing severe cuts. Um, so that can really limit folks ability to get quality information via those traditional sources, just because the funding is through either funding or through ads is diminishing. I think, you know, there are lots of great creators on social media who are putting out evidence-based pieces, but there's so much information. Our brains were not designed to take in the amount of information we take in currently. So if you are going to be on social media, um, which I am, um, put in some guardrails for yourself to limit the amount of time that you are on there. If you are following accounts that make you feel bad on a regular basis, don't follow those accounts. If you see content that you think is of really good quality, engage with it, like it, comment on it, share it. Um, there's ways to be on social media, but also knowing that there is a lot of content out there that's not just misinformation, but can be a lot of really negative content. So I think it's, it's important to go in there with um, some skepticism as with any kind of media. And also, I think, you know, it's, I think just supporting creators who are doing that work, but I do think there needs to be, you know, it, it is really sad what is happening in traditional media. So I don't think necessarily social media is the solution, but I think it, it also is one of the things that is happening. So making sure that social media quality is being amplified. Yeah, I, I I worked in radio for many years and a ton of my friends just lost their jobs with the big Bell Media cuts recently. And it's it's hard to see where we go from where we are now with so many of these media companies going the way they are. And I mean, it's all well and good to try to ignore all of the content that you think is bad on social media. But every time I go on my Facebook or the CPA Facebook or Twitter, I find out something else awful that Mary Berg, the host of the cooking show on CTV is doing uh, because somehow they've picked her as the face of some Bitcoin scam and keep, oh, you know, heard about that. yelling about scandals about Mary Berg. And uh, it is very bizarre of all the people to to just pick at random out of a hat that's the one that i see the most often so all right one last question for you then in, in terms of tackling disinformation what about in person so you're having thanksgiving dinner with your family i remember several years ago i was having thanksgiving dinner with my family and one of my family members was trying to convince everybody that climate change couldn't possibly be real because ice cubes float in water. And it seemed like an odd thing to, to say, but his contention was that even if all of Antarctica melted, it wouldn't matter because it's an ice cube floating, right? And so we explained that, no, it's a landmass. There are active volcanoes in, in Antarctica. And no, that can't be true. So we showed them online and 
you know, well, that's the internet. Anything can be there. So I pulled out an atlas from the 1967 Compton's Encyclopedia set that I have in my house and showed that, oh, well, that's from the 60s. We've learned a lot since then. Like there was no convincing this family member that what he believed couldn't possibly be true. Is it worth having that discussion at Thanksgiving with your family or should you avoid that at all costs? <laughs> I love this question because I think everyone can relate to that just big blow up at the table with family members. And it, for some reason, it's usually an uncle. And I don't know why. There's a great game uh, called Cranky Uncle where you get to kind of simulate these these tactics of misinformation that I, I definitely recommend by uh, created by Dr. John Cook. But should you engage in these conversations? I personally believe that our relationships with others can have the most impact when it comes to misinformation. A social media post can have impact, and, and, I, and I'm glad that it does because that is so much of the work that I do. But I think that relationship that you have with someone that you love and care for is so much more impactful. And I think it begins with listening, listening to what their concerns are and making sure that you can have a respectful conversation that is void of insults or mocking or eye rolling. And then if you feel like you're not able to have it at that given time, then saying like, I'd love to talk about this with you later when things are more calm, because often if things are heated, the outcomes aren't going to be positive. Um, And then I would also say, try to find some common ground. So for example, if you're talking about um, you know, vaccines, you say, well, you want to protect your family's health, so do I. You're frustrated about uncertainty, so am I. Trying to find things that you both care about is really key. And then also you can discuss, you know, if, if you know a debunk and you have it right in your back pocket of why that is wrong, wait till things calm down before you whip out the debunk would be my suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> people are going to not always absorb these facts as well. They are going to connect with relationships and with stories. Um, so, you know, and, and also ask permission for it. Say like, you know, I have some really great resources that I would love to share with you later if that's okay with you. But then also, you know, some, like, like I mentioned earlier, there is that part of the population who they have their mind made up. And not much could be said to make them change their mind. And you have to know um, when to pick your battles around that too. But then there's also this real group, this movable middle that has strong doubts and uncertainties. But that is kind of the group that we are often speaking to and wanting to um, share things with because it's really normal to have questions and fears. So it's, it's definitely okay to talk about that. So I definitely would encourage folks to... Enter a holiday meal with some calmness and with some empathy. Yes. And, you know, I think less and less often do we have that debunk card in our back pocket because the conspiracies change so rapidly now that, you know, you're quite ready to confront the conspiracy that climate change isn't real because David Suzuki owns a house, but you're not ready to confront climate change isn't real because Greta Thunberg is 
uh, an alien frog from Mars or whatever, right? Like it's so new and crazy and like <laughs> there's no way to respond to all of it at once. So I think that you're right. He, a little uh, perspective and calm and rational thinking might be the way to go there. Uh, Kira, I'm curious, uh, you work with Science Hub First. Uh, you're one of the climate experts there. Uh, what does that work look like? Uh, what are you doing? Do you uh, go online and specifically talk about things? Do you send Rachel information when she needs it? Uh, how, how does that work? Yeah, so I'm one of the expert vetters with Science Hub First. So um, my role is mostly to sort of behind the scenes verify uh, the social media posts that have been created, especially about environmental science and climate change topics. So I go through and sort of double check that the evidence is up to date um, and sort of putting the best science foot forward. Um, so with the most accurate and, um, you know, most engaging information as well. And I'm wondering if you can explain a little more about that and get a little bit more into the weeds because I know that, you know, one of the things that I try to do is uh, science dissemination. I try, try to be a knowledge mobilizer for psychological science. And invariably, when I write a piece, when I, you know, put something out, I'm getting it a little bit wrong because I don't have the foundational knowledge in that science. And I'm, I'm, my real question is, how much do you nitpick, right? Like, if you got the numbers wrong, that's one thing, but is the general sense of the thing, or do you have to, in the case of science up first, do you have to make sure that it is a hundred percent exactly accurate because that's the mandate of the, of the, uh, organization. Some of the work that I've done has been taking on a post that is, uh, like formatted and sort of ready to go. And then I'm going through and making sure, yes, like you said, the numbers are correct. And the research cited is the most recent and, the most thorough, I suppose. So in that way, we're always trying to portray, well, and just share accuracy. But some of the time, it's also that there's a topic that they're curious about that uh, signs up first, that is, would like me to delve a bit deeper that I might have expertise in, in which case I'm sort of like drafting the post and putting all that together. But maybe Rachel can talk a bit more about the mandate of the organization. Yeah, so um, I'm sure that's a fantastic job. Um, she's also a fantastic science communicator as well. So I think that's a big part of, of what we do is making science accessible. Our posts, we strive to always have things that are great to reading level. This approach might involve some oversimplification and not always the nuances or details may be explicitly covered, but we always encourage readers to then go into the reference material or ask us questions if they want more information there. Um, but we are doing in a for social media, trying to do our best to cover what the scientific consensus is. Mm -hmm. um, if there are dynamics, dynamics or perspectives are evolving to be clear on that, that's an emerging viewpoint and that the current consensus might be reached. And also, you know, we, we sometimes a lot of our posts will get reviewed by more than one better when it's a particularly difficult topic. And there, you know, scientists disagree on things too. There's things sometimes there's this idea that, you know, scientists is just this hive mind, but there's a lot of there's lots of different thoughts around things. So we sometimes will go back and forth on the detail um, until we feel like we've got it quite right accessibility is is really important to us we always try and strive for a grade six reading level for all of our posts 
And we try and only have a certain number of words, max 100 words per slide. So it's very readable. And sometimes that involves oversimplification. Not all the nuance will be picked up all the time, but we really encourage folks to check our resources too and ask us questions where we can expand more deeply on a topic. And we know that our audience also doesn't always have a scientific background. So there there will be some pieces that, that will get missed. We also have a collaborative approach. Sometimes our posts are vetted by more than one vetter and who will ha- bring ex- different expertise to the table and different views. Also, we know that you know we're always looking for the scientific consensus too, but we also know that science is always is not stagnant, it's always evolving. So for different emerging viewpoints to be under consideration and incorporated is important to us as well. One of the other things that we've talked about this month is young people in general. Like the two of you are young people. You are part of the fight against climate change, the movement toward action, the debunking of misinformation. And I was telling uh, one of our guests earlier, when I was a kid, like this was the biggest, most important thing in the world to me was the saving of animals. That's what I wanted to do. And we would have little air bands in our garage in Winnipeg and, you know, play the fake drums on the, uh, you know, garbage cans and uh, do an air band to Corey Hart and charge our neighbors a quarter to come and listen. And then uh, we would donate that money to the World Wildlife Federation. And now I think they're young people are the people who care about this the most, presumably because it's going to affect them uh, down the line. So Kira, I'm wondering uh, you as a young person, what got you into studying climate change or studying the environment as your decided career path? What was it that took you down this road? Hmm, that's a great question. I uh, I grew up at my parents' house backs onto a conservation area. So pretty much every time I could, I would spend outside and we, there was a little creek back there. So kind of just exploring the, the banks. And even when I had friends over, we weren't really well, we weren't really allowed to have video games, but even if we had, we kind of just always went outside and uh, you know built little bridges over the stream and kind of hung out out there. And then that eventually became, I got a microscope for Christmas and, you know, just did a little like science experiment with the, the water quality. And, you know, it was all very like primitive at that point, but um, it really got me engaged in the issues of science and measuring what we couldn't quite see or observing things in more detail that we might just notice while walking by. And that's kind of the curiosity that's always spurred me on. And even from like early grade school, there was never really a question that I wanted to be an environmental scientist. Terrific. And now you're on that career path. I think the one other thing, though, that young people have today that is sort of something they didn't have when I was uh, a young person, including video games. I'm too old to have had video games when I was a kid. Like only the really rich kids had the Nintendo system and they would be able to play Super Mario and you'd go over to their house and just watch. Like that was that was my experience with video games as a kid, right? Um, but the other thing now is that young people can be online influencers. And it strikes me that that's one of the things that is causing the most disinformation. And Rachel, I'm hoping you can speak to this, but that you can develop a great deal of internet clout simply by putting stuff out that you know not to be true, but that you know is going to get a reaction. Maybe you could just 
elaborate on that a little bit as one of the young people doing the opposite thing? Sure. Um, I would I would counter that a little bit and just say that we are all vulnerable to misinformation and disinformation. And at any age group, we can be creating it. And, you know, the the misinformation that, you know, might be more relevant to younger folks might exist on TikTok, but misinformation that might exist for an, an older demographic might be on different media platforms as well. Like there's a proliferation on Facebook and there can even be a lot of misinformation on um, on television and cable news. I think also there is some good evidence. I think it's from the Center for Countering, uh, countering uh, Hate put out that a lot of disinformation is originated from what is called, and this is particularly around um, health misinformation, is from this uh, disinformation dozen. So the, the yes. original pieces are coming from a small group and then can be pushed out further by many, many folks. But you definitely are tapping on into something that, you know, inflammatory speech or using things that are have, have a big emotion, they're going to have a big reaction, um, are rewarded on social media for sure. And and um that will definitely get you a lot of eyeballs in the algorithm. So I would say like countering misinformation in in captivating ways if you are you know for young creators out there hopping on trends existing trends to share good information and meeting folks where they're at so if that's where people are most engaging on how can you create your content to fit in with that as well and while sharing um, positive messages for sure and you mentioned this disinformation dozen which I've read a fair amount about, and one of the things that I've tried over the years to really figure out, and so far I don't think we've come to a consensus uh, with all the psychologists I've spoken to, but there's a lot of research and a lot of knowledge that we have about why people believe disinformation and then share it and it becomes misinformation and then it really, you know, goes a lot further than the truth might in a much shorter time. What I don't understand, though, is the motivation of the person who creates it in the first place. That person has to know it's not true because they're inventing it themselves. And Mm -hmm. from there, it right? Is it just the feeling of clout that you get from watching the words that you've typed, the, you know, misleading graphic that you've created, the fake science study that you've invented? go across the world and end up being quoted on the floor of the parliament in the UK? Or uh, is there more to it than that, do you think? Mm, That's a great question. I think that's definitely part of it. I I think, um, you know, you know, so it's part of the human experience to want to be recognized. I think another huge part is it can be really profitable. It can be really profitable to share disinformation if then you are saying, well, I have all the answers and also my products will solve the problems. So, you know, it can be a huge revenue stream. And it looks like uh, Kira has some thoughts on that as well. I wasn't sure in terms of my introduction, what background I should give, but I also wanted to mention that I have a, well, I have two masters, but my second master's was in science communication. And I've specifically focused on climate communications and sort of strategies to combat climate misinformation. So especially kind of looking in news outlets, more print media, but how climate change was framed and discussed and sort of what strategies were effective around that. So 
I think your previous question had to do with, uh, you know, individuals producing misinformation and spreading it on social media, but I wanted to kind of, I guess, right. mention the, the and, yeah. and Rachel mentioned that there was a financial implication there that they would be, you can make money doing this. And that's why pretty much everyone who spreads disinformation also has a line of supplements that you can purchase for, uh, you yeah. know, <laughs> which I'm sure are rigorously scientifically tested for effectiveness, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess the, the the main thing I was, I'm not actually really sure where some people get the ideas on social media, but I, I do wonder if it's that they're creating content themselves because they know it will, you know, cause sparks or whatever. But um, there's also a lot of automated bots and like spam accounts that are politically funded. Um, and that's sort of a more modern phenomenon because yeah. these de deceive users and sort of manipulate search results. But then historically, there has been an organized and well-funded creation and spread of climate disinformation to sort of forward political and industry agenda, especially by the oil industry. So I just wanted to kind of bring up that context because it's uh, well-documented that that information is out there and, you know, the average person gets their hands on it and they spread it widely because it kind of confirms the confirmation bias, but they don't read further to see that, you know, the studies were funded by, uh, you know, petroleum industry or that sort of thing. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that, because the study is funded by the petroleum industry in the 1970s. And at that time, they say, OK, we need to combat this science that's out there that tells them that we're part of the problem and we're not going to make as much money if people think we're part of the problem or if there are rules that say, let's move to renewable energies and so, so forth. And they create these studies, which could only be disseminated in newspapers and on television and on the mediums that were available to them at that time. How are those studies still around? How are those, how is that disinformation still out there when presumably it was all debunked before the advent of the internet? Yeah, you would think. And I mean, we mentioned vaccines earlier. We don't want to get into that whole hullabaloo, but in general, <laughs> there, there, there are studies that studies or just reports that have been disproved in a lot of fields that continue to be brought up as talking points by, um, you know, those that are sort of counter to the, the current climate agenda or vaccine agenda or that sort of thing. Um, and it doesn't seem to matter that they've been disproven because the audience that's hearing the messaging is just hearing that the study exists and so-called experts, you know, found that result. They, they haven't heard the, the debunking per se. Right. And it strikes me that when these things originally took place, right, they originally came out with this, you know, counter uh, narrative. The idea was to just sow enough discord and create enough, I guess. Uh, Reasonable yeah. doubt. <laughs> uh, yes. Thank you. That is the word I was looking for. I mean, like that thing that they say in the trials that the lawyers have, <laughs> and, you know, if there is a reasonable doubt, then you can't convict this person. Well, if I have a reasonable doubt that climate change exists or not, then I can just go ahead and choose to believe the thing that makes me most comfortable, which is that it doesn't. That seems to have been the original goal. And mm -hmm. now you still have this perpetuated cycle of that, where now, though, it, it seems like just clouding the issue isn't enough. You have to shut down the people who are talking about it. You have to go after the specific people, right? Looking at the hate that's directed online toward the David Suzuki's and uh, Al Gore and Greta Thunberg of all things. Right? When she was a 16 year old kid, she had to deal with more hate than I could even imagine uh, being exposed mm -hmm. to in my lifetime. 
And that seems a lot more insidious to me. Yeah, it definitely is. And there, I think it's Dr. John Cook that he was mentioned before, but he does a lot of awesome research on the techniques used in science denial and sort of straw man arguments and attacking the individual is one of the most common um, where, you know, you don't even listen to the point being made by the expert, but you tear down their credentials or even the way they look. And that's not at all relevant to the point being made, but uh, it does resonate with some of the audience members that are inclined to not believe the point in the first place. So the last question I have for you then is that a lot of this disinformation is couched and is sort of presented as scientific information. There are journals that will publish any study that you put out there because you're paying them to do it and people can invent science and then point to that so-called science and say, look, there's debate on both sides. There are, right. How do you, how do I, a regular person going online and reading about some climate science, determine whether it came from a credible journal, whether it came from a credible scientist, whether it's based on anything that should be considered credible, uh, do I have the capacity to do that as a regular person when there's this industry designed to make me question the expertise of experts? Yeah. I mean, even as a scientist, the individual journals that you can publish in, like there, there are thousands. And, uh, you know, I would like to think that most of them are reputable, but um, it, that's not going to be something that comes down to be the individual. I don't want to say layperson, but someone that's not in academia, like they won't, they won't really be able to tell which journal to look at. But um, the sort of fake expert technique of science denial is also a really common one where there was actually a petition of, I think it was about 31,000 scientists that were cited as, you know, denying that climate change was human caused and that would have any effect on, uh, you know, the planet. But if you kind of look at their individual credentials, these people self-declared whether they had a science degree, which in itself they may not have. I think some of the names included like the Spice Girls. So <laughs> looking right. at the signatories, you can see that there was a lack of validity there, but um, whether or not someone has expertise in an area depends on if they studied it. So people signing that petition that had, uh, you know, a degree in metallurgy, I think was some of the examples. Yes, they might be a scientist by that term, but uh, they don't study climate science or atmospheric physics or really have any uh, ability to comment on climate change and its validity. So I think I'd encourage people when reading anything to, to do a quick I mean, Google can also be a bit of an echo chamber, but a quick search, especially on the Skeptical Science website, which is run by Dr. John Cook, kind of the, the key <laughs> arguments that are out there, but also just looking at the author itself and seeing whether or not they have any uh, expertise in the subject area that they're trying to comment on. All right. I want to close this out. I'm going to ask you a very big and broad question, and I don't expect you to have all the answers to this, but just can you give us an overview of in terms of climate change and in terms of the crisis that we're facing, where are we now and where are we going to go from here? Well, the science is very clear. Um, there are many published studies saying that more than 97% of climate experts agree that human emissions are causing it, um, that it's getting worse and that we have to tear down on fossil fuel use immediately. Um, and the science is settled and we just, <laughs> going forward, the, the issue is convincing the public, talking to, you know, your friends and family, as Rachel mentioned earlier, sort of forming relationships and finding common ground with your peers and with your community, that this is an issue that we need to address uh, for, you know, our children and communities in the future, and having that translated to public policy and our elected officials as well. So I think 
research is uh, coming along, at least from <laughs> the, the academic side of things. Like we're, we're making a lot of headway in understanding what we can do. And, um, but yeah, we need to stop, stop burning the stuff and stop putting uh, carbon into the atmosphere is the bottom line. And hopefully uh, we can be, psychology can be a part in convincing people to take it seriously and to take the measures that are necessary. Uh, Kira Simone, Rachel Salt, thank you so much for being a part of the, our Mindful podcast and for closing out Psychology Month with us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. <laughs> and thanks to you at home for listening, streaming, and tuning into our Psychology Month campaign this year. Visit the CPA's website for a series of written pieces that are informed by these podcast episodes and that highlight some other ways psychology is tackling the climate crisis. Mindful will now return to regularly scheduled programming, where we bring you an episode every two weeks. And that's going to start on March 7th, when we'll preview the new book by Dr. Raymond Abdul-Rahman, Developing Anti-Racist Cultural Competence. Mindful is written, hosted, and published by me, Eric Bullman. Our producer and editor is Jamie Montgomery. And our theme song is Avenues by David Taylor. <laughs>